chosen to stay. And grateful to his wife for bringing him, I guess. <laughs> also in a while. Okay. So what I want to do tonight, um, the title is Relationship Between Halakha and Ethics, Three Case Studies. And that's, I want to be clear, that's really what we're trying to do. Um, I'm not trying to develop an overarching theory of the relationship between Halakha and Ethics tonight. Uh, I want to do three case studies, each of which I think um, frames a different aspect of the relationship between Halakha and Ethics. Am I audible and back? Yes? Okay. And if you end up with an overarching theory, good for you. Um, but my ambition tonight is not, really, is not at all to develop an overarching theory, but to start a conversation about the issue um, in ways which I think have not been perhaps sufficiently brought out before. So really, I'm going to teach one case. Um, I'm going to offer what, um, what I think are the problems with the way in which it is generally understood. Um, suggest an, an alternate interpretation, but one which I state up front is one that has absolutely no precedent in the literature and is explicitly rejected by at least one of my teachers. Um, and see if you buy into it. And then the second one I'm going to try and offer something um, which is, so far as I know, also largely original, and see if you buy into it, right, tell you why I'm suggesting it. And the third case is wholly traditional. I'm not going to do anything on my own at all. Um, but I think that it, will, that it will be illuminated by the previous two cases, and, you'll, and we'll see if it works. Okay, so the first, so if, you turn, if you turn the source sheet, the first is a case in Bav Messiah. So we're just going to read it together, and then I'll ask you what you think the case is about, and hopefully we'll have, a, we'll have some kind of discussion, and see if you recognize what the challenges are in understanding it, um, and then see where we go from there. So here's the case. Rabbi Bar Bar um, who presumably is a member of the rabbinic class, um, but also not poor. Uh, right, so he has shikuloi. Shikuloi are porters, right, the people who carry stuff. And they're carrying barrels of wine for him, and they break one of the barrels. Okay, presumably he's hiring them right, to carry these barrels, and one of the barrels breaks. So he takes their garments. Now, why does he take their garments? And paying for the wine, which is presumably right, more than they have in more than they have in cash, and more than all the money that he had contracted to pay them. Right, so they're being hired to transport these barrels of wine, but each barrel of wine is worth more than they will be paid for the entire job. Asu Amr the Rav. So they come and they tell Rav what Rabbi Barbar Khan did. Amrleh, so Rav says to Rabbi Barbar Khanan, Havhuglimayu, give them their garments back. There are, there are source sheets here. Um, yeah, there, yeah. Okay. Give them the garments back. That's not, they're on this, this here. Um, give them the garments back. Okay, to which his response is, Dina Hachi? Is that the law? And Rav's response is, In, that is the law, because there is a Pasuk in Mishle which says, Leman tovim. You should go in the ways of the good. Okay, so what really was the what really was the answer to his question? Was it the law, or was it not the law? No, no it wasn't no. the law. No, it wasn't the law. Now, it was a good thing to do. So that's an interesting opening question, right? Is it true that there are good things to do that are nonetheless not the law? Right. So we're not kanhalachists here, right? We don't think that all good things. Right? You don't think so? Not quite the law. But it is the law because he 
responds pathetically. He says, in. He says, yes. Yes. Yeah, so, right, so th this is the ambiguity. Right? The ambiguity is, the question is, is it really the law that I have to give back their garments? And the answer is yes, but the, but only, but the only meaning you can give to the, to the answer yes is that every right thing to do is the law. Because he quotes a verse that has no specific legal content. All the verse said is, do the good. So we can claim that it is all, whatever the good thing is, is the law. The only problem is, then, so what constraint is there on rabbinic power? Right, how, what determines what the law is? Whatever rabbis think is good. And then they can tell you that's the law. If you ask them why you think so, well, because after all, Tanakh says do the good. This is the good. Do it. Yes, Elliot? I think it's also important that you, you, know, you, could, have, you could have quoted something like yeah. from Torah, and yet he's quoting a passage from Mishle to say this is the law. Usually you don't make laws. Yeah, this is also true, right? Usually if you want to claim, claim authority as law, you quote Torah. And then he quotes the Pasuk in Mishle, which emphasizes that he's making a moral and not a legal point. But yet he answers the question, this, right, this is the law. So I'm asking another question. Why does Rabbi Bar Bar Khanan ask that question? Right, right? He comes into court, and Rav tells him, give them their garments. And his response is, is that the law? Why does he ask that question? Because he knows it isn't. Because he knows it isn't. And therefore, and what conclusion does he wish to reach? Because he knows it isn't. He doesn't want to get back to clothes. And if it's not the law, he doesn't, he doesn't have to do it. Does he think that, does he understand in advance that it's wrong to take the garments? I think he never, but doesn't really care. He knows, so then why does he change his mind when Rav says yes and quotes the pasuk at him, which makes it clear that it isn't the law in a formal sense. Right? It's a fascinating conversation. Somebody does something, right? right? Something, he does something which we all understand that under the law he has a right to do. Right? And, right, that people broke things of his, they don't have the capacity to pay. So he is right. So he is taking what they have. This is right. This is standard halacha. If you somebody owes you stuff and they can't pay, you can seize their possessions. So he does right. So he so he acts in accordance with what he understands to be the law. They go to Rav. Rav tells him, "Don't do it." And his first reaction is not, "Yes, sir." His first reaction is, "Are you telling me that because it's the law?" Implication: If you tell me, if you're telling me it for some other reason, like you don't think this is the right thing to do. I won't listen. So Rav says, yes, it is the law. And quotes a verse which makes clear it's not. And he listens anyway. He gives him the garments. Yeah, put this also in a context of, I mean, obviously people will say, if I hire somebody to come in to move my piano, yeah. and uh, he's in the and so on, but, you know, professional company, and, uh, Company has company. Oh, yeah. Since who the company? Yeah, the, the, the piano owner. Good. Hold that for one sec. Of an employer to an 
Well, let's see. I don't know what those obligations are since Rob doesn't have any other than doing the right thing. So you're claiming... No, I mean, the, yeah, well, in this case, I'm saying that you put sometimes the obligation of doing good where in this case, because they are poor, and as we should... Okay, so I want to, I want, I want to hold off in a sec on the poverty because it'll show up the next line. Right, so the, he gives them the garment, Umrlay, so now they are emboldened by Rav's ruling. Rav says you have to give them back their garments, and they say, well, so we have a sympathetic judge here. So they say, Anan, we are poor. They make that claim explicitly. We are poor. We are not rich middle class or rich, you know, rich youths out on a lark um, right, to, to engage in physical labor. Right? This is our work. We are poor. And we worked the entire day. And we're hungry. We have nothing. So Rav says to Rabbi Barbarchan, Zil Hav Igraihu, go pay them their salaries. And Rabbi Barbarchan says, Is that the law? And he quotes the second half of the Pasuk. Right? In Virachat Sarikim Tishmur. So he right, they owe him money. They broke his thing, they're liable, there's no denial of negligence. And he starts off by attempting to collect some portion of his debt. He's told he can't collect. And then in the end, he's told that he has to pay them. And the question is, right, is this the law? And the answer is terribly ambiguous. So let's start, before we go any further, how many of you think that Rav did the right thing in telling we got a few people. How many, how many of you think that Rav did the wrong thing? Okay, tell me why you think Rav did the wrong thing. Because it's not the law, because he falsified the... In the court of law, like, I mean, if, he, if he wants to go beyond the, beyond the law, he, he can do that anyway. So he abused his power. Seems that way to me. Right, you think so too. Um, okay, so that's a really important question, right? Because do we want... Let's we put on the right. Do we want it said that where there is a rabbinic will, there's a halachic way. And whatever the rabbis say is justice, right, we, right, that becomes the law. Do we really want to say that? Yes, Alan. No, it's bad public policy, because right, because it will lead to a, it will lead to um, a lack of concern by porters for the goods they are carrying. Right, and that will lead to refusing to hire workers who aren't bonded. Right, so actually, in the end, it will in the end it will hurt it will, it will hurt the poor porters. Okay, I think it's much simpler than that. I think that Rav violated um, an explicit, yeah, several explicit isurim deraita, because there are psukim the Torah that tell you what. Not Master of the Torah, but worse than that. No, 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 not sharply. So what did Rav do? Right? Two people come to court. Yeah. Yeah, right? There are specific prohibitions of the Torah that forbid you from favoring the poor in court. Right? You must not favor right? You must not favor the poor. And here Rav is, it's pretty bald. Right? They walk in, they say, We're poor. And he says, Oh, you're poor? Well, then the law is this way. If you were rich, the law would not be that way. That's not what Rav is saying at all. What, what Rav is saying is not that it's the same case, but it's a matter of... Because this is a context in which he is an employee, employer who hires these people. Yeah. The question is, the 
I, it would be a good thing for me, though, who has nothing to do with this, and to give them money. I understand that you would like to say that. But Rav wouldn't apply. I understand you would like to say that, but they say. So I'm going to say that I, I, it's not in the text, because the text, in the text, their only appeal to Rav is, we are poor, we have worked, we are hungry. That is all they say to Rav. They don't say, and he hired us. They just say... No, no, but he knows what the I know. Is, and he's telling the employer, yes, you have okay. the to Okay, so you're entitled to take that position, but I think you're not accounting for them saying they're poor. If it's just employer-employee, no, you want to say the employer... Okay, so that's... He incurred such an obligation. Okay, I'm willing to hold that for a moment. I want to try and do something else with it. I mean, what do you want to say? Um, do we assume that this is a real bait-in situation, considering it's only Rav? Aha, so maybe it's not really bait-in. And if it's not really bait-in, so the prohibition of Lo Tzedar Pedal only applies in court. But when you're a single judge, um, could be. Although it could be that, um, it could be that, you know, that in certain cases you can have a single person set up as judge, and there seem to be lots of cases in the Talmud where, right, with both parties' acceptance, right, you're willing to accept a single judge, and that goes on today also, just because it saves on fees. Uh, right, because judges generally get paid per hour. Okay, yes, Alicia. Um, so the, the first, the first uh, uh, thing of Rav that after it's um, the, the garments seems more, you know, like, it's more understandable, Absolutely right. So this is right. So you're, we should point out, right, that the first case is rigged to make you remember that there is a verse in the Torah that says you're not allowed to take the clothing of poor people as collateral for loans. So this, yeah. yeah. All right, what he's doing is he is using the resources of the court to give charity. Right, which is uh, no, 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 no. okay. Hold on. You gotta let the people talk. Because let me let me play devil's advocate a little bit. Because I'm willing to set up things that are going to change afterwards. Uh, okay. Yes. You got a comment? Similar. Similar. Okay. So I'm going to say it's actually much worse. Oh, Sally, you want to say something? Yeah. I just perhaps I'm just giving him like muster to say just skip to like like you're assuming that that, that in the second in the second part of the, in the second case he's he's advocating. To give them wages? No, he's, I, I presume he's advocating to give them tzedakah. They're poor, and, and just give them. Like, but he quantifies it. He says, "Zil have igraihu, go give them their salary." So, some people are very charitable, but they, they're very bad to their employees. So, okay, but he's right. But it sounds like uh, the interesting thing to me is that in the conversation, you have Rabbi Barbar Khanan who seems. Not to think what he's done is right, what he what he's done is wrong, and he only wants to give in if it's the law. Right? So it's not going to work unless there's a claim that it's the law. But the problem is that we that he really shouldn't be convinced. But I'm going to make it much worse. To me, right, the danger there's a reason that the Torah forbids favoring the poor in uh, favoring the poor in court, and the reason is that if the if it is known that the courts favor the poor, what will happen? People, rich people won't go to court or they'll buy the courts. 
Right? So it is in the interest of the poor for the courts to be recognized as objective and ground to law because the, the only defense the poor have against the rich is the rich's voluntary submission to the law. So if it becomes clear that any time a rich person goes to court with a poor person, the poor person wins, there aren't going to be any rich people in court. Or there aren't going to be courts like that lasting very long because the rich will buy their own judges. So... I, wait, give me a minute. Give me a minute to set out an alternate thesis. I know, I know the argument. Okay, so your thesis is, is there. I want to try and set something else out. So I want to set. I want to set this out that there is that that. So one solution. So we have a couple of solutions. One solution is to say he doesn't really mean it's law, and I've set that out as really problematic because if he's presenting that it's not law as law. That's really problematic. A second solution is to try and construct a particular way in which this is the law here, even though he cites no particular, uh, no particular proof for that. Um, and that, I think, is very hard to read in the, um, to read in the text. And the, problem over, the, the overall problem, though, is we don't take an approach like that. So what is he really doing here? And the underlying challenge is to what extent do we want judges to decide the law in accordance with their perception of the rights? And to what extent do we want judges to decide the law without regard to their conception of the right outcome? So I want to tell a story. The story is that there's a um, couple, unfortunately divorcing, and the, um, the um, the, the one spouse, the husband, is actually, it's, like a, it's a pretty classic case. The husband is actually caught um, in flagrante delicto, right? Actually caught in bed with, with someone else, and that's what triggers the divorce. Um, and then there's a bitter, nasty financial case, and the, out, and the husband has much better lawyers, and he wins. So that's about everything in divorce, in the divorce. Uh, he has all the money, and the wife wants to appeal. The husband's lawyers prevent the wife from appealing because the only asset she has to pay for the appeal is her house, and they prevent her from selling the house. So she cannot appeal either. She has one weapon. The one weapon is she has refused to accept a get. And she comes and asks her Beit Din, do I, right, the husband sues her in Beit Din, Asking, do I, right, asking the Beit Din to compel her to accept the get. So now what do you think the Beit Din should do? What do you think? They should compel her to accept the get. They should compel her to accept the get. Why? Because it's, no matter the circumstances, it's not okay to utilize someone else's, to utilize your qualified agency over somebody. It's, right, because she's doing something wrong. Yeah. And so we will impose this on her to, um, in order to prevent her from engaging in injustice, even though the result will be yeah. that and she will suffer an injustice. Rabbi should also pick up a fund to pay for her legal defense. Ah, right, the rabbi should start a fund. Okay. Uh, yes? Then it's hard to 
for me to say that you should refuse it. However, say she had proof that the husband's lawyers had bribed the judge, and you knew that the decision was unjust, then maybe there might be more grounds for um, uh -huh. get. So I agree with you all. Uh, I agree. Why shouldn't this then compel her to accept the gift? Because it's... Why? On what grounds? On the grounds that otherwise she's holding somebody hostage. She what? She's holding somebody hostage. They both went to civil court. He's holding her hostage. No, he's not. Because she wants to appeal, and she doesn't have the money for an appeal. That's just being done. But all is, in a, only, all is in accordance with the law. He's not doing anything illegal. So, okay, so here I will take a very, very strong position. And this is what, right, this is what I said in the case. That a, a Beitin can never allow, right, a, can never allow the get to be used as a weapon to remedy any wrong in civil court, because if we ever allow it, then every single party who is dissatisfied with a civil verdict will claim that they were treated unjustly in civil court, and we do not have the resources to determine when that is or is not the case. So as a matter of public policy, I, I read, I held, and I held. Right? Um, that is absolutely the fact, absolutely the case, that the Beit Din cannot, um, cannot allow, no matter how plausible an argument that injustice has happened, that right, the Beit Din can never allow the get to be used as a weapon by either party in a divorce case. And that left us in the position of having to tell somebody that we would, not only would we not support them, Against, an, right, against what they perceived to be implausibly contended was a gross injustice, that we would actually compel them to, um, to do it. So, I want to the, to, I wanna go back to the Porter case. Um, what's a judge supposed to do in that case, where if you follow the law, as it is, then these poor people end up having worked all day and having no money and starving. Um, and the truth is, I don't think Rabbi Barbarakana gets very much out of it. I don't think he, get, right, he gets he gets their garments and their wages for the day, which probably don't come very close. Don't, right, don't make up for the barrel, right, for the, um, for the barrel of wine at all. So when my mother Aleha Shalom um, went through a period where she was a corporate lawyer, uh, so she um, worked for she worked for a large firm that largely engaged in um, defending reinsurance companies. <coughs> This was not one of my favorite activities because, as I argued, probably not so politely at some point. Uh, at some points, that basically you have, you have, they basically defended bankrupt insurance companies, and these were all lawsuits between insurance companies trying to divide the assets of other insurance companies. But the thing is, they were all owned by the same people, so it made no difference. In the, it made no, right, they're all they're all publicly held companies. They're all owned by the same shareholders, playing for the same mutual funds. So actually, you could have flipped a coin. And justice would have, right, and you would have had more justice. All that the fights were about was about which side's lawyers got more. So I was deeply unimpressed with the, right, with the um, profound moral implications of reinsurance battles. But in the process, my mother, I should say, disagreed with me strongly and believed that the law was the law, and it really mattered what the law was. Um, and you know, and she thought I was, you know, that my concern for the outcomes was was misplaced. Right, it matters was the what matter was the law. But in the process, I learned about a really cool concept. Uh, which is called set-offs. So here's the, here's, the, here's the story, right? So let's suppose that I represent, um, I re I represent insurance company A, and um, let's suppose Tova, Tova will be insurance company B. So now I owe Tova $100,000, 
and Tova owes me $100,000 because we're constantly trading things back. And in normal course, course of events, that's fine because right, I'll give you your $100,000, you'll give me my $100,000, it makes no difference. Then I go bankrupt. So now when I go bankrupt, I'm not going to give Tova $100,000. But if Tova just decides, well, you, look, you owe me $100,000, I owe you $100,000, so I break even, it turns out that, by the way, I owe $100,000 to everyone else in the room also. And you guys aren't going to get a penny. All right, Tova is going to get all the $100,000 that I owed her by keeping the money that she owed me. And all of you are going to get nothing. This is why we have lawsuits. Uh, right, the question is, is it, right, can Tova, in fact, set off the money? And say, right, even though that way she gets an inequitable share right, uh, of the... Right, of, the, uh, of, the as- of my assets? Or do we say, no, you have to, right, Tova has to pay me and then it will be divided among the creditors equally? So now this turns out to be a very complex area of law and it raises the interesting question, what does halakha say about such things? So I want to suggest that what halakha says is that it's up to the judge. And then, what I want to suggest is that the proper reading of the Gemara in Dov is not that Rav forces Rabbi Bar Barchanan to forgive the debt of the wine barrel. What you have is they owe him the money for the they owe him the money for the wine barrel. He owes them their wages. You could cancel them out and say, okay, right, 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 don't give them their wages and they still owe you the rest of the, they still owe you the rest of the money. Or you can say, no, you pay them their wages, they'll pay you they'll pay you your wine barrel. Oh, by the way, they're broke. And we set up a payment on the installment plan. Right, so that's, right, that's my interpretation of what goes on in that Gemara, is that, there, is that a judge cannot, a judge cannot um, change the law to favor the poor. A judge cannot change the law to favor his conception of justice. But in areas, in procedural areas where the judge has discretion, the judge is entitled to, right, to, uh, right, to make procedural decisions that will favor substantive justice um, when procedural justice will be the same either way. Now, I do need to tell you that my teacher, Rabbi J. David Bleich, has just said, nah, when I told him this, when I suggested this to him, and I cannot find any, any evidence of it in, uh, in Rishonim. Uh, nonetheless, it seems to me the best way of resolving it. So now, okay, I'll take two comments and then I'll go back to the other case. Yes? So yeah, I get that with Blake, because again, you're like the problem with you're inventing something that's not in the ground. Like it would, you would think it would make much more sense if you said, I'm like, Ian, I'll to the king this morning, and they'll pay you back over in an installment. There's none of that in the story. He didn't ask. <laughs> it was obvious. And also, if this is again a principle that the judge has discretion in this law, it would make much more sense to use you know, I don't know. That doesn't bother me so much. The first question is a real question that Rob doesn't mention that, but maybe you know, that the given is that they owe him the money. The, quest, the question is, does he have to pay them their salaries anyway? The answer is yes. Alright, yes. Yes, I do. I think the real problem is that you're, you're still allowing ethical considerations of kindness to the poor to enter into the question, right? So that you're just determining procedural um, uncertainty based on ethical principles. Why is that better than deciding the whole case based on ethical principles? So I think is a fair question also. 
I think is a fair question also. So I want to tell you, and then we have to go on to two other cases. And we can, I hope this will send me lots of thought. So here is a possible outcome of the other case. Let's suppose that the husband really wanted to get married soon. And let's suppose that one of the things that is in the discretion of the Beit Din is whether, is how soon to schedule the case. So that, the, right, so that you tell the wife, there is no question that when the case comes up in court that we will rule that you have to receive the get and we expect you in court three months from today, which is about two and a half months after your husband's scheduled wedding. <laughs> uh, so... Right. This, I think, it raises all the exact same questions. Right? Is that a legitimate use of of the Beitin's authority? You don't do anything that you could. You could. I know the calendar's busy. On the other hand, it is certainly a deciding of a um, of an issue. Right? Of an issue. Right? You're deciding a discretionary issue on the basis of on the basis of substantive justice. And I can see Robert Bork already behind your eyes already saying, right, we've given into the original sin of substantive due process. Um, tempting, right, the tempting of Beitin. Uh, absolutely. So I don't know. This is, like, this is a case I think about a lot, um, whether, right, whether that was in fact the right reaction or not. And I put it out to you as the first case. We're going to go on to the second case now. As the first case, I'm just a problematic, that on the one hand, you really want courts to reach justice, and courts will always have discretionary issues, and the law will never exactly match substantive justice. As part of the nature of law is that it will always be wrong in particular cases. And law is about abstractions. So what are judges supposed to do? I think that doesn't always give you all the tools you want. Even then, if you, you, know, if you do open up cases to find substantive Right, to, you know, to find precedents that you, could, that you will rely on here though you wouldn't otherwise, that's challenging. Okay, I want to go on to the second case. Keep that in mind. This can be a conversation throughout life. It's fine. No, no, I, I, need, I need to hold off. I need to hold off. Okay. Here is the, here is the second question. Second? Page, pardon? Page two. Yes, it says page two. On it. Look at that. <laughs> I wonder who did that, who finally remembered to put page numbers on it. Um, so this was a... Um, this is, this is a, an attempt on my part, um, which I'll say, tell you where it came up first. Uh, it must be about 15 years ago that the Save, Save Darfur movement was in full swing. Uh, actually, I took the fellows of the Summer of Midrash to the Save Darfur rally in, uh, in downtown, downtown Boston, which was not terribly well attended. We were, <laughs> we were important <laughs> that, uh, that we showed up in some ways. Um, and as part of, but there was there was as a, sort of a climatic, I don't know, I guess a, a high point of that was a uh, was was a demonstration in Washington, to which there were buses sent from all over the East Coast, and the late lamented organization Ada, uh, that by Saul Berman at its head, uh, called me and asked me to construct a source sheet that could be used on their, that could be used on the buses of the, right, the, the buses coming from unorthodox communities to the rally, that would be relevant to it. So that raised the question, what should we try, right? What, what should we have on that source sheet? And the way that I sort of frame the question to, to myself is, is there a mitzvah to prevent genocide? Right, right, 
And, and that, to talk about that question. And what I really wanted to think about in certain ways was, is there a difference between saying that it's right to prevent genocide and saying that you are michuyav to prevent genocide or michuyavit? Yes. Well, it's not a duty or right. It's the right or right or duty. And was there a value or not in trying to construct a formal halachic claim about this? So then I gave it in the shir in a number of different contexts. I gave it in uh, in YU and in um, in the uh, the Kohelet Beit Midrash in Philadelphia, um, and got different reactions from people as to how it played out. My sense. In NYU was that I really, and this is the way I wrote it up for, for Kalam Vaser also, was that in order to have an impact on that segment of the modern Orthodox community, it would not be enough to say, I think, right, to say there are sources that say that it's, that it's, a, um, it's the right thing to do because everyone would say, okay, it's the right thing to do, new. Right? If it's not halacha, then, right, then it doesn't really push me. So I thought that there, was a, that there was a real value in trying to make the argument halakhically and that it would, it would affect people um, in that way. The challenge, on the other hand, is to figure out, so what does it mean to say that there's a halakha to prevent genocide that is different than a halakha to prevent murder? And there are limitations on the halakha to prevent murder, for sure. Right? There are lots of, unfortunately, there are lots of murders going on all over the world. And I don't spend my whole life doing anything, you know, just wandering around the world trying to prevent them. So to construct a legal obligation is a very dangerous thing because the legal obligation is you really have to do this. And how far does it go? Does it construct, right? So another context where it came up, and you'll see on the reverse side, I don't have to do it now, on page three, I actually wrote an, wrote, wrote a, um, an op-ed piece that was published in The Jewish Advocate. Uh, when there was the issue about whether the United States should intervene to protect the Yazidi, which is a minority, a minority that um, a religious minority in Iraq that um, is being threatened with genocide, um, and to see if we could construct a serious halachic argument about that, um, and I stood the problem up hand. Let's say Saddam Hussein um, committed a form, uh, committed mass murders and genocides in a certain sense. And he killed a lot more people in the mass murders than the genocides. Because genocides are easier if you're doing it to small groups of people. As opposed to mass, right? You know, and, and is there any way, halakhically, to say that if you kill 25,000 marsh Arabs, there's an issue to stop someone from killing 25,000 marsh Arabs, but 12 million Russian peasants, that's not anywhere near the same deal, because after all, there are hundreds of millions of Russian peasants. So that's not right. So that's not the right. So trying to figure out, you know, and, and if you're going to say no, it doesn't matter whether they're, whether it's a community or not. So then, what gives us the grounds for distinguishing between one, two, and three? Right, is it, you know, what comes? So that was, that's one problem. Another problem is, do we really want to halakhasize ethical issues? Do we want to say that every time that I have an ethical impulse? My, right, my, what I should do is I should convert it into halakha because that's the way the non-Orthodox community will care. Um, right, is that really what we want? The, right, the halakhization of all ethics. And among other things, it raises hackles properly in non-Orthodox communities because people immediately think, oh, that sounds like dasura. Right, it, sound like, right, it sounds like rabbis are arrogating to themselves 
the authority and issues about which this is a foreign policy issue. Right? So for me to claim that you have an obligation to go to a rally, a halachic obligation to go to a rally to prevent right, genocide in Darfur, but what happens if there are other strategic considerations? Right? Other, right? Do we really want rabbis, right, let alone right, if we start talking about whether, right, issuing halachic rulings about whether the United States has, a, um, has an obligation to, right, to intervene militarily abroad? Right? Do we really want that to be an issue of, an issue of Sakh? That generally is supposed to be one of the dividing issues between modern orthodoxy and the Haredi world, about whether we give rabbis power over things about this. So here I will get myself in trouble, as I always do. Um, so I, I tell the story over and over again. I hope that someday, that I hope that it's a sort of self-defeating story. There's only one time in my career where I've been shouted down while giving a shear, while attempting to give a shear. Uh, and that was actually in Shari Tzvila and Newton. And it was because I attempted to give a sh- that was when I was younger when I was younger and I thought I needed controversial titles to attract people, so I titled a sh- a, sh- a drasha there why modern orthodoxy should believe in dastara. Didn't make it through the fifth sentence, <laughs> and somebody just got up and started shouting at me. Hey, modern orthodoxy shouldn't believe in dastara. Any attempt that I made to explain myself just was not going down there. But I got as far as the joke, which is one of my standard speech jokes. Uh, which goes as follows. There are two communities. One community believes that its rabbis should learn economics and philosophy and political science and, um, right, and biology and physics. And one community believes that its rabbis should learn nothing but Talmud. And there are two communities. One community believes that its rabbis should have authority over physics and, right, and history and, poli- right, and, pol- and politics and math. And one believes that its rabbis should have authority about nothing but halakha. <laughs> And then you put those two communities together, you're like, something, something is very wrong here. Right? The community which believes this rabbi should know nothing, believes they should have authority over everything, and the community which thinks this rabbi is, has to, right, at, right, are supposed to know everything and thinks that it doesn't matter in the slightest that they do. So, uh, right, the, so something has gotten this. If it depends how you learn Talmud. Right? If, you, right, if you learn Talmud you know, in a particular way, then everything is part of everything. Yes. Um, so, on the, so I don't, you know, so I want to say that on the one hand, I don't, I don't like the position that, that, rabbinic, that rabbis, halakhic authorities have authority over foreign policy. And at the same time, I also don't like the notion that Torah is irrelevant to foreign policy. And the question is how to find the, how to find a ground in which there is, right, in which there is something to say that matters to people, which is not the same as, as being able to order them. Um, to do it. Yes, Elliot? Just on that joke, right, that community that encourages its rabbis to learn the knowledge of politics because only wants them to also encourages the people who do economics, politics, and all that to learn to learn to learn and says you have to listen. I think the rabbis of those communities would say you can't prosecute for yourself. You have to... Okay, so I don't, it doesn't bother me. I, 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 there's, I'll, you know, I don't think there's any Magic or anything in the word rabbi, so I don't care. I care. <laughs> and that is, you know, the right. This the classic Hassam Sofer joke. We might write that the that um, somebody right. You have the problematic in its own right that um, to free a man in particular cases to commit bigamy if his wife went insane and things like that, or she, and she can't she can't accept to get. So you have to have a document signed by a hundred rabbis. And people ask the Hassam Sofer, why is a hundred rabbis? Why isn't a hundred great Talmud Chachamim? Hundred Talmidei Chachamim, and his answer was that it, that it's a kula. 
<laughs> getting 100 scholars is a lot harder than getting 100 rabbis. I don't care about the Riddick title. I really don't. Um, if you know more Torah than your rabbi, then you should pass in. Uh, I mean, you know, more Torah, you have the right experience and all those sorts of things. But if you're more qualified, if you're more qualified, the fact that you don't have a diploma, um, you know, I kind of grew up on The Wizard of Oz. <laughs> Not the movie, the book. The movie is too cynical. Yes? I'm just, so, I mean, I'm, what's your defense? Why should modern orthodoxy have less Torah? Why should it? Because, because we, what's the point of having our rabbis be broadly read if you're going to say that all they're reading has no, right? As long as, once you get away from narrow Torah, Right then, we don't, not interested in your, we're not interested in your statements. The only reason to have rabbis who are broad is so that they can apply Torah in ways that you consider meaningful. And if we don't think that there's any benefit to knowing more Torah, right? That you know that it's, it's totally irrelevant because you're still you're not you're not as much an expert. So we're only going to listen to the political scientists, the biologists, and things like that when it comes to it. So then, what's the point? Um, so there has to be there has to be something that knowing Torah, right? Some advantage that knowing Torah gives you in a dis, in a, right, gives you in a discourse where the fields merge, or there's no point in learning in having people learn it other than to make sure they don't become really great scholars by occupying their time, and then they won't have authority over you at all. I mean, you know, <laughs> that, that doesn't seem very pointful to me. Okay. So, this is, right, those were the, those were the, um, the issues I was trying to navigate. And here's what I came up with. Um, I found, there's a Gemara in Sanhedrin, which is not hard, right, we're still on page two, the Gemara in Sanhedrin says that you have an obligation to, if you see a friend drowning in a river, or really a peer drowning in a river, not friend, because right, drowning in a river, the Pasuk says peer, um, right, so if you, if you see someone, someone at risk of death, you're supposed to intervene. You have that responsibility, even if it's a claim. And I'm going to assume, we'll talk in a moment, I'm going to assume that that applies to non-Jews as well, though not yet. That's part of what I, we're going to have to move it. We're going to have to expand it in a whole set of directions, right? Where does right to to accomplish this? In general, I have a bias towards not making such distinctions. But you're right. The Torah says reya, and reya can mean um, can be limited to Jews, right? You have to use the meiri generally to expand to expand it. Uh, on very practical grounds, among the Haredi community in Lakewood, I heard the following discussion go on, go on about if you see a bunch of Jews. That are attacking a Palestinian. Yeah, I don't want to. So, yes, I know, I know. So, I'm, so when it comes to the law of Rodef, I'm absolutely, absolutely clear that there is no difference among human beings. And I will state that as an, you know, it, I know that I could make a halachic argument the other way. I think the halachic argument the other way is immoral. And I'm 100% clear in Paskening it. But, if you're at, but I'm now trying to make a technical argument that will convince people who don't share my presumptions necessarily. So I'm not going to make that assertion boldly. Yes? Okay, so let's start. first of all, there are crazy people in the world. <laughs> no, I don't know of anything about that. I don't know that. You know, that, I'm willing to believe many things about such people, but uh, but this one seems a little bit extreme. I hope. I hope. Um, I'm going to try and build an argument, all right, and we'll see if you buy it. Okay. Halakhically, I don't have any problem extending the law of Rodef particularly. That's that's easy. 
And Reacha is going to depend on some issues whether you extend the Miri, among other things. But I'm going to try and build the argument out this way. So here's a Sefer HaChinuch. Right, Sefer HaChinuch is, is a standard halachic work um, which provides rationales for, for mitzvot along, right along with halacha and therefore is often useful if you're trying to expand the ambit of mitzvot because the question is how much legal force does the rationale have if the rationale, right, if the rationale seems to justify a broader scope for the mitzvah then, right, then, um, then what you might think if you just, if you just, read, um, if you just read the law. So he says that commandment number 600 is, we are obligated to save, to rescue the pursued from the hands of any who pursue them with intent to kill. Among the roots of this commandment is that God, who is blessed, created the world and willed that it be settled. And the settlement of the world is upheld by the championing of the weak against those stronger. And furthermore, that the pursued will always have eyes and heart turned towards God to champion him against his pursuer. As scripture said, the Lord will seek out the pursued, meaning that the pursued seeks the Lord and prays to him. Therefore, he who is blessed has commanded us to assist the pursued. There is no notion of Jew or non-Jew. Anywhere, the, right, the rationale is clearly universal. Um, right, it's not, just, right, not just a practical rationale, but a theological rationale. And nowhere in the mitzvah. Right, nowhere, no, at least nowhere in the parts I excerpted. I think that's true. Right? Does he? Does he? Um, does he have to look it up afterwards? Never trust excerpted sources. Uh, but uh, right, right. He doesn't distinguish between Jews and non-Jews, and I'm happy to um, to say Rav Chaim Soloveitchik has a whole lambdas about why this is that Rodef is part of the mitzvah of dinim, as, and um, which apply, which is one. It's part of the mitzvah of dinim, which is one of the sheva mitzvot. Uh, and I'm fine. I'm fine setting it out that way. But I'm also interested in the way he frames it. He doesn't just, right, because he frames it as an obligation to protect the oppressed against the oppressor. Now, Rav Yaakov Emden, in Shalot Yavitz, in, a, in an interesting tshuva, has the, right, has the following category. It says that there are certain cases in which people are not obligated to go to court as witnesses to testify in order to prevent injustice. But he says, this, Masha'en kein be'adam chashuv. Right, these exemptions do not apply to an Adam Chashuv. Says there is a particular obligation, a kind of noblesse oblige, on Adam Chashuv to rescue the oppressed from the hands of the oppressor by any means avail- right, that he is capable of. In begufo, whether by direct physical interference, or by political influence, or by other effort. Whoever the oppressed may be. Does that mean even if he's not Jewish? Yes, it's specifically talking about a case where the oppressed is not Jewish. Yes, that's the case. Kenyan Shemar Iov, and let's watch Veshpor Metlaot Avil, Uksav Chesuv Bimoshe Rabbeinu Alav Hashalom, Vayokam Vayoshian, Afel Pish Benot Komarayu. Moshe Rabbeinu got up and rescued the Lord of Midian, even though their father was an idolatrous priest. Okay, so we have a right. So we have a obligation to rescue people whose lives are in danger. That is expanded by the um, by made clear by the um, by the Sefer Chinuch that that applies to everybody. But the question then is, right? It's really an obli- the obligation is really not to stand idly by. To what extent is there an obligation to actively intervene under what circumstances? And here, Rav Yaakov Emden says that there is a special category called an Adam Chashuv. Right, who has a, a proactive responsibility 
to go right to go be the knight in shining armor to rescue the to rescue the oppressed from the hands of the oppressor. So what constitutes an adam chashuv? So I translate it as a Jewish political responsibility. All right. So what I want to contend is that what Yaakov Emden meant is that generally Jews were powerless in European society. There was nothing they could do, and they had no responsibilities politically. So when things right, so when oppression happened, there was nothing they could do. And Adam Chashuv was somebody who had, right, who had a role in the political process. So such a person, right, once you are given any degree of participation in the political process, you have an obligation to use that influence to prevent injustice. So my contention is that in a democratic society that accepts Jews as full citizens, we are all Anashim Chashuvim. And so this obligation... Right, devolves on us right, that we construct an obligation to proactively um, rescue the oppressed from the hands of the oppressor, not just in cases of threat to life, right, but that there is an obligation to use political... Right, when you are entrusted with political influence, there is an obligation to use that political influence on the side of justice. Okay, that gets me somewhere. Now I still have to get to genocide. Right, this just gets me... Right, this just gets me, in, you know, I don't know, it might get me uh, prison reform. Uh, yes, Elliot? I just, you know, it's very hard to find who's the oppressor. Right? Sure. To do justice, we have to use our to do justice. Like, yeah, I'm not putting any content to it until you ask me, and then I'll say, if you ask me, do you have to, do you have to you know, advocate for prison reform? In, Laman Telech Bederech Tovim. Yes, that's right. And then we have a whole, right, that's why, and I, I don't want to impose my ethical laws. I'll just say, it's okay, you know, I might say, because I'm a shrinking violet, you know what, Elliot, whatever you think is justice, just don't think that you have the obligation, that you, could, that you have no obligation, right? I might say that. Unless I thought, you know, that it was really, really important, and you asked me the question the right way, that I know. I, I, don't, I don't like to impose the law that way. Yes? Well, any case, so we automatically define people whose lives are endangered as oppressed. Because most things that you'll read about, like physicians, for example, on Shabbat in regard to Pikuach Nefesh, really try to narrow it that it's only for Jews. And then they. Not me. (laughs) I don't know what most things are. I think that the the practical clearly is that you're not allowed to make a distinction. Well, so how you do it? How you do it? That's a whole separate share. But it, but the the outcome is the same. Um, how you do it is a separate thing. But I think the outcome has to be the same. Uh, that's you know, there's a whole you know, project to try and collect all the makara to figure out why that is, on the assumption that is the right answer. You know, which, which is you know, in Boston you can say right that was the the answer the Rav gave supposedly when asked the question was you know would you save would you violate Shabbat to save a non-Jew? Yes, I'll figure out why later. <laughs> so we're still trying to figure out why in some cases in a rigorous argument but there are arguments that so I'm not bothered by, bothered by that in the end and I'm trying to construct a different argument which doesn't deal with specifically with, the, with physicians but uh, do things like the government and so on or military intervention and so on as you do uh, you have to deal with the problem at what cost absolutely other kinds of and I'm just about to deal with it I really am. Just about to deal with it. Yes, I know. It's not there. Because I'm going to have to make a much more complicated halachic argument that I don't want to, that I have no textual support for at all. 
Uh, <laughs> yes, Alan. Because I think that I think that Yakendin's category of Adam Khashuv just meant right meant that most Jews didn't have a role in the political process, but an Adam Khashuv had influence. But I think that as citizens in a democracy, we all have that kind of influence. We vote. But it still seems to be different from the person who's actually in office and can actually sort of you know command some resources or something not in office with So that right, so that is my right, that's no question my extension. I don't know. That, you know, as opposed to viewing it as a little influence, a lot of influence, right? I'm viewing it as no influence, influence. Right? I'm drawing the drawing line. I'm, I'm clear, right? You can't, you know, it, it's. Uh, I think Avakian introduces a category that doesn't really have an analog. Right? The, the modern situation is different, and the question is how we extend the category. So this is my attempt. It's a creative move, but you ain't seen nothing yet. <laughs> okay, so now I have to get the genocide, and the issue is. How does, one, right, how does one create a special obligation to prevent genocide um, that, doesn't invo- that doesn't require one to, right, to run around the world being the world's policeman, which is always the complaint against right, moralist foreign policy people. So I started from a, very, from a very different place. What I started with by saying is that I've read a whole bunch of books, I imagine you have, and I think it's very common rhetoric in the Orthodox community with, around Yom HaShoah to be really mad at the U.S. for not sufficiently intervening in World War II to prevent the Holocaust. Right, we, should have bombed the, we should have bombed the tracks at Auschwitz. We should have read all those sorts of things. Now, what's interesting to me is not always true or not. What's interesting to me is I cannot imagine any other country in the history of the world about which anybody, any Jew would ever have said that you didn't do enough to prevent other people from killing us. Right? The best we would ever have hoped from any country previously in the world is that they would not have killed us. Right? That's right. That you, if, you didn't, if you didn't kill us, we were pretty darn happy with you. The notion that not only did you not kill us, but you went to war, and the result of that war was that we were saved, and you, right, really, and you saw that as part of the moral purpose of the war for some part, but you didn't do enough. Right, that is wholly unprecedented. Yes, Avinov. Uh, World War One, the Jews of Poland and Galicia very much expected the Austro-Hungarians to come save them. Come save them as Jews? Yeah, particularly the Jews in Austro-Hungary who are appealing to the Galician Jews to welcome the Austro-Hungarians as saviors. I mean, it's a, it's a complicated <laughs> dynamic because they were being accused of. of Yes, I, I have my doubts whether that's a moral obligation because they're people, right, as opposed to a, a particular obligation for services rendered. Uh, yes, Harvey. You know, I just in general of World War One, you know, it's very different from World War Two in that respect. That the, Pol- the Polish Jews are probably better off on, on, on the areas that were occupied by Germany and Austria-Hungary, as you said, than they were on being occupied by the Russians. I'm fine with that, but I think that usually the Jews, you know, and if you were nice to us, we might ruin for the notion that you had, an obli- you had an obligation to take risks, right, to save us because they're being mean to us. Right, that seems to me a wild thing. Maybe I'm, you know, so I'm an American exceptionalist, and it might be that I'm insufficiently uh, historically versed. But that, let's take it as a given. Institutions and so on, geared 
That's right. Well, and the other situation, for instance, when Russia had the uh, various kinds of pogroms, there were murmurs from other countries, but no country felt that there's a way that they could really intervene or that that would help them. But I don't know that they would have felt, I don't think we would ever have thought that another, I mean, even if, um, I always loved there was a Wasserman cartoon many years ago in which they had Gene Kirkpatrick try and explain the difference between our policy towards El Salvador and Nicaragua. Right, where the government seemed to be doing roughly the same thing, but one of them was a right-wing government, right, and one of them was a left-wing government. And so Wasserman had Kirkpatrick explain that the Nicaraguan government, which, which we strongly oppose, you know, rapes, tortures, murders, and otherwise, other, otherwise oppresses its citizens, but the Salvadoran government leaves many of these functions to the private sector. <laughs> <laughs> Was actually true, right? Because El Salvador, you had private right-wing death squads. It really, but any case, it was too true. It was way too true. Um, any case, uh, I still voted for Reagan. <laughs> um, the um, second time, yes, I was old enough, wasn't I? No, I wasn't old enough. I guess I never voted for Reagan. I would have voted for Reagan. Um, the um, okay. So what I wanted to say was, if you accept the argument that the United States had an obligation to intervene in World War II in order to prevent the genocide of the Jews, then you have to morally feel a reciprocal obligation. You can't say that the United States had an obligation to prevent the genocide of the Jews. That doesn't make any sense. You have to say that the United States had an obligation to prevent the genocide. And you have to feel that as a citizen of the United States, you feel the same obligation towards other groups who are being threatened with genocide, and as a collection of Jews, right, that you have the same obligation. So that's my premise. That's my pre that was my premise, that it can't end up being that, they have an right, that there's an obligation towards us that doesn't apply to other similarly constituted groups. And here's what I wanted to argue. You have this category called the Sheva Mitzvot Bnei Noach, Right, one of the right, seven Noachite commandments, and one of the seven Noachite commandments, um, as Rav Chaim Salvechik argues, and I said before, is dinim, is the mitzvah of establishing a viable criminal justice system, basically. And that applies equally to Jews and non-Jews. So I want to set up the thesis that, that often in halakha, one of the problems we have to figure out is what are the obligations of corporate entities? So, for example, what are the obligations of governments? Right, governments are, right, are governments more than the, the aggregate obligations of people? The governments have, right, have independent existence. We're trying to figure that out more with regard to corporations now. But governments is an issue. Collect collectivity. So here's what I wanted to argue. That maybe, just like there's an obligation on individual people to rescue individual roadfim, right, Maybe there's an obligation on collective, on collectives, to prevent the murder of other collectives. That just right that the that the same way there's an obligation of relationship among individuals, there's also an obligation of relationship among groups, and that would enable you to construct a specific halachic obligation on a political collectivity to prevent a genocide, as opposed to a mass murder. I made that up. If the community as a whole, as a community, a community, a shtetl, 
Yeah. Ah, so now we'll go to our last. If they could do it without cost, but you never have to risk your own life to save somebody else's. So now the question is, now the question is, but in order to in order to intervene to right to protect another collective, you're going to have to risk your soldiers' lives. So if you treat it just as obligations of individuals, right, then you'll never. So wait one sec, because I'm going to answer the cost question now. What's the difference between uh, one person, a hundred people, a thousand people? So I think, there's no, I think there's no difference between one, people, one person, a hundred people, and a thousand people, but I want to argue that there is a difference between a community that has a specific cultural identity and a, community that, and a community that doesn't, in the same way that Ramban seems to suggest that there is halachic significance to the notion of species. Uh, right? that, there's, right? that, there's a value, that there's a value to the preservation of species. So I wanted to argue that, there is, that although, just like an individual has no obligation to risk their life to save another individual, so too a community has no obligation to risk its survival as a community to rescue another community, but it does have an obligation to risk individual soldiers' lives because that's how communities act. Right? Communities act right, by putting the, right, in the same right, communities act by putting individual members in danger, and there might be an obligation, right, and that's where we get to military intervention, that you don't have you, know, you never have an obligation to fight an existential war, but you might have an obligation to risk the lives of individual soldiers if the consequence of that would be the ability to prevent the genocide. So, this is a very elaborate argument. It rests on a, rests on a, whole, num, on a whole lot of slender reads, right? because I have to put the Adam Chashuv category and expand it out. I have to create the notion of, an obli- of obligations of collectivities towards collectivities, and then I have to introduce this last point. So the underlying question is, and at the end of the day, I say, at the end of the day, I do not wish to be able to walk into the president's office and say, Jewish law compels you to send soldiers right now right, to, right, to Iraq to protect the mountain in which the Yazidis are surrounded. What I want to do is to make an argument that should have some concrete resonance in the Orthodox community as to, right, as to what its political priorities and positions should be without saying that, right, that, it, that the reason you should buy into the argument is because of, is a, right, or the way in which you should engage in the calculus uh, right, is simply by evaluating my halachic authority. Right, that's right. So I'm trying to find some intermediate ground of a halachic argument that is, in, that is intended to concretize values without necessarily giving it formal legal force. So that's the, that's the second example, and you can all go think about whether that, whether that works or not. So now I'm going to create a much more problematic case. Uh, we'll do this very rapidly. So the much more problematic case is... Uh, pardon? I yes? You have to, I think, I mean, there are several, like you said, thunderies, there are several difficulties with, with what you're setting up. But I think the most important difficulty will be finding a way to acknowledge that Jewish law has any sort of concept of a community. Right? Meaning, I don't know why, from a halakhic term, just because they happen to share a culture, we view Yazidis any different than Russian So that is a challenge, right? That's, that's a challenge. You have to create that category and see whether there are other resonances. Right? 
right, and try and see if they're right. So there certainly the existence of such groups is recognized in Tanakh, sometimes for good and sometimes for ill. Yeah, but this is relevant. Meaning the, the fact that yes, like, inachinami, inachinami. There's a lot of work. There's a lot of work to do. So the question I want to just raise is whether this is, if you want halacha to say anything useful about major modern questions, this is the kind of work you have to do. Otherwise, otherwise halacha ends up stuck in a corner. Uh, right and right and then we're going to end up you know making narrow decisions about the kind of paper in which the president should write his proclamation, and not about what the, right and not about what the words are. Um, right, we're never we're not going to we're not going to be able to say anything about big issues, and we're going to say well there's halacha which talks about the little small things in life, and then there are ethical questions in which we all just quote so came like levan telech bederech tovim, and impose and impose our own preconceptions on the text. So the question is, is there? Not, I can't take questions. I can go to the third case. Is there? Is there not a middle ground? And is this a worthwhile project? Is it a worthwhile project to try and concretize ethical intuitions, especially about public affairs, into right into into law? Um, right. What would it take? Right. When you understand anything like this is going to take large jumps. So what does it take to make arguments reached by means of those large jumps meaningful to a community, and not just look at you and say, "Well, Ray Clapper's off on one of his wild, right, one of his wild creative uh, junkets again." Um, and this is true of many areas, right? You know, it happens. Politics is a particular one, but it's this. But there are many areas in which we, in which, in order to make halacha relevant, we have to construct um, complicated arguments of this sort. Some of them we sort of realize we need halacha, like you know, uh, maternity, maternity, and complicated in, in cases of complicated parentage. So we kind of realize people have to be Jewish or not Jewish. So even if we're making up the answer, but through huge creative leaps, we recognize there has to be an answer. Maybe there doesn't have to be an answer about foreign policy. Okay, last case. Um, so totally reset. I want to read to you um, what I think is one of the most amazing moments in rabbinic literature. There is a pasuk in Kohelet. Pasuk in Kohelet says, "V'shafti ani v'ared kol hashukim asher nasim tachat hashamesh v'inei dimata hashukim v'ein lehem menachem u'miyadosh kehem koch v'ein lehem menachem." I turned and I saw all the oppression that takes place under the sun. Behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they have no comforter. Power flows from the hands of their oppressors, and they have no comforter. So in Rabbah, we have a character named Daniel the Tailor, Daniel Chayata, about whom, so far as I know, we know nothing else. And Daniel Chayata said that this pasuk is talking about mamzerim, right, children of adultery. What, right, who are the oppressed? The avotam shel elu avirot. The parents committed adultery. Ve'ilu aluvaya, and these, right, these suffering ones. Why should they suffer for their parents' sins? Right? So if his father committed adultery, right, what is his sin? Why should it bother to him? But they have no comforter. Rather, power flows from the hands of their oppressor. Who are their oppressors? From the great Sanhedrin of Israel. So the oppressors are the Sanhedrin. And the power that flows from their hands is halacha. Umirachektan, that distances them and prevents them from marrying the Jewish community. Because of the verse that says a mamzer may not join the Jewish community. It is my obligation to console them. All right, so here we have a... I think you know, pretty much nothing else like rabbinic literature. You have a statement that says, well, you know what? There's what our ethical intuition is. There's what halacha is. They don't go well together. What are we supposed to do? God says, a So 
in the 16th century, um, a question comes to Rabbi Yellow Circus, the, known as the author of the Bach, about a woman whose husband disappeared some years earlier, and she has been in Agunah because her husband has disappeared, and she doesn't know what happened to him. And then she, right, she went on an investigation, and she discovered that somebody, by the name of her husband, had died, in some, had died in a city somewhere near where he was supposed to have been rumored, and she gets a document si- signed by, uh, by a group of witnesses there identifying that a man by such and such a name died in such and such a town on such and such a date, and can she now remarry? The problem is that the witnesses contradict each other uh, about exactly when he died, and the descriptions of one witness, one, and the descriptions of what the husband looked like contradict each other also. So, the witness, right, the witnesses before said that um, I think it's the witnesses before said that he had a uh, he had a big big he had freckles above his nose, and um, the witnesses there of the body say it had freckles under the eyes, and so there are a whole bunch of difficulties, um, and the. The Bach receives the letter that, um, from, a, from a rabbi who wanted to allow it and asked the Bach to agree, and he said, which is the right thing to do, what you're supposed to do when you get a letter about Naguna. Um, he said, well, I don't find your arguments convincing, but I have my own arguments that, uh, that convince me. And one of the arguments, he says, the reason I'm doing this, he, he starts with all the appropriate gestures of humility, and who am I to be involved in an issue that's so serious? But he says, I remember this Midrash. And the Midrash said that there are times when halacha, when halacha is oppression and power flows from the hands of the oppressors, that's us. And God says, it's, God says it's on me to comfort them. I want to be like God. So he went out and he found a way to permit the woman to remarry. Rabbi Vadya Yosef, halacha shalom. Rabbi Yosef, halacha shalom quotes this Midrash in the introduction to his tshuva in which he releases every single one of the thousand plus 1973 war one by one. But each, of them reaches the, but each of them is released. And he quotes this tshuva, and he quotes this tshuva regularly, and there's a tremendous story that was told uh, after his death that uh, at one point he is sitting in his office and a group of women come in and they just to thank him because he released them and they're crying over his hands. And when they leave, he lifts up his hands to his family and he says, Elu dimata ashukim. Right, these are the te- Elu dimata ashukim. These were the tears of the oppressed, which I released. So you have, you have Chivot that... Um, yeah. Ravavad Yosef. Right, so that you have this Chivot resonating, not just moving from the realm of Mamzerut to Agunot and then, and then becoming the inspiration that the, what you learn from this midrash is that rabbis are supposed not supposed when Torah seems to be oppressive, rabbis are supposed to find a way around it. Ravavadius um, um, says the same thing about Mamzerut. People write, write writing cases about Mamzerut. Somebody wrote a, he was Matir Mamzer, and Ravavadius said, you know, said good for you. You did the right thing because after all, and he quotes this midrash also. But you're going to tell me about the Langer case, I know. I was going to obliquely reference that sometimes, like, I'll reference too. It's okay. Sometimes there's no out. Sometimes there's no out. It's not that whenever you feel there's oppression, there's an obligation to do everything you can to find a way out. At the end of the day, it happens that there's no out. There's going to be no out. 
or you didn't work hard enough. That is the, <laughs> that is the, the question is, do you believe that there must be an out? Because God comforts the oppressed. Hold on for a moment. In the, however, in the 19th century of Yosef Shol Nathanson, the Shol Meshiv, also gets a question about Mamzerut. And the question there is, there is a, there, there is a couple that has uh, committed adultery, I think, and the right, and now the um, and now the wife wants to marry the man with whom she with whom she committed adultery, which is Asur. We hold Asur leboel, Asur lebal, right? That if, you, if a woman engages in an adulterous relationship, she can't she can't stay married to her husband, and she can't and she can't um, marry the other person. But she wants to marry the paramour anyway. But she can't do it because she's still married. And so she asks, right? She asks for uh, she asks for a get, and it may be that the husband doesn't want to give the get, and the question is whether to compel the get. I, I don't remember exactly the cases. But Shalom Eshev said, "Should we give this get?" I think the question was, "Should we give the get, knowing that the reason she wants to get is that she will then commit a different isur, which is marry, right? Which is marrying the mar- marrying her lover, but." She's going to marry the lover anyway, and if we don't give the get, the kids are going to be mamzerim. So the question is, should we give the get, even though we know that we'll be releasing her to marry somebody that we think she ought not to marry, in order to prevent the children from being, from being mamzerim? And there's a lot of pressure on, on Rabbi Nathanson to give the get. And he says, well, I understand all this is, very, this is really very good, and that's why we have this midrash. Because the midrash says that God says, it's my responsibility to comfort them. Not yours. So he reads the Midrash in the exactly opposite, in the exactly opposite way, that the Midrash relieves rabbis of responsibility. And if you look at the Midrash, I know what I taught this a couple of times, people look at the original Midrash and not clear that his reading isn't the better reading. Because it says, God promises I will comfort them in the world to come. When there'll be no mom's there. And worse, in the original case, that was sent to the Bach, Right, where the Bach right, quoted this midrash and he went out of his way and he right, he and he right, and he freed he freed he freed this woman um, and he has all, all sorts of other fun rhetoric that the um, right that every time which becomes very popular it's, it's, it's carried all the way through that um, anyone who frees an aguna is really bringing the ultimate redemption because right because every aguna represents the shechina right divine presence which is an exile right, which is an exile from. Um, from, well, depending which version, either from Jerusalem or in exile from, but the the the, the imminent and transcendent um, uh, transcendent aspects of God are in exile from each other. So when you're free in Aguna, it's as if you're right, you're you're causing the redemption and, and unifying the 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 uh, feminine and masculine aspects of God. It's really very good. So he decides he's going to be matir this woman, and he decides that well, you know what, right here, that's under the eyes and on top of the nose. So the witnesses aren't contradicting each other after all. And he has other ways of reconciling it. And so, reconciling it. This is all very well and good, except that a month after he writes the truth, the husband comes back. <laughs> Happily, she hadn't remarried. So there are, right, so there are grave dangers in, um, right, in assuming that one can, um, right, that one can um, out-ethic the law. Um, and right, both of which emerge from these cases. So that's it, right. So I think that's also a very problematic case because what the, the the moral underlying it is that um, 
is that the law has its the law has its logic for a reason. And I'll close with one more thing, which people often well, I'll try it on you, you'll see if you like it. Professor David Halivni argued that this midrash is the reason that we still have Mamzerut. If it weren't for this midrash, we would have solved the whole problem of Mamzerut long ago. Why is that? Because he said the one sure way to make right, the one sure way to freeze halakha is to critique it ethically from its roots. Because if you do that, then everyone will have to say, well, look, if we, if we make the changes that you're demanding, then we're conceding that the source of the law isn't divine. Right? If, we, if, we, if we allow you to say that the law is at its root unethical, then we challenge all of law. And so the immediate reaction to saying the law is at its core unethical is everyone circles the wagons and says either no, it's not, or okay, it is, but it's God's responsibility, not ours. Uh, right? So he, right, so he made the point that that the use of ethical language in critique is often is often a mistake if your goal is to integrate ethics into right by setting up the opposition, right, you are right, you're actually ensuring that your argument won't get heard. So that's another cautionary tale uh, that comes from uh, that comes from this midrash. So that's that's the set of case studies I wanted to set out. I think each of them shows you that you know both why there's a strong temptation um, and why there are grave risks. Um, in setting them up. My own, my own position is that you can't have law without ethics. Uh, law without ethics inevitably becomes some combination, some combination of irrelevant or evil. Um, so, that, right, so the removal of ethics from law, the notion that law can be done purely mechanically, um, I think should not be religiously sustainable. But I think that the reduction of law to ethics um, First of all, my, so my own mantra is that I think that the presumption of Torah is that the Jews are intended to be a political community bound by religious law. And the reduction of law to ethics fundamentally is the elimination of law. Um, and secondly, I think that you end up with a community that is wholly subjectivist and you have no grounds for, right, for imposing obligations on others. And I think that's a very bad thing too. Um, so that's what I want to set out is that this is, a, this is a work in progress. In many ways, it's a life work in progress trying to figure out what the, what the relationship is, and I hope that this is helpful to you in figuring out um, what kinds of discourse you, or you, have, or, um, you should be supporting in the community and how you make your decisions in your own life. And I think it's 8 to 10, so if people want to ask private questions, that's great, but there's probably enough to think about with my, without my having to answer uh, questions and holding all of you prisoners. So thank you very much.